This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey there, stackers. A little last minute notice here. I'm going to be in Boston on Thursday and nothing I like better than meeting up with a few friends maybe over a foamy beverage. You get to choose foamy or non-foamy, your choice. Not going to make you choose one or the other. But on Thursday night, I will be in Cambridge at 6.30, Tavern at the End of the World. I'm going to bring some t-shirt codes. I'm going to bring a few books from recent people who have been on the show, like uh, Chris Mamula, Ramit Sadie, one by Tanya Hester, a few others. We'll do a giveaway. We'll have some of Doug's trivia. It'll be a good time. You, me, Tavern at the End of the World, tomorrow night. If you can, let me know that you're coming. That would be fantastic. Make sure we get a big enough space. Uh, We already mentioned this in the basement. Looks like so far you're going to be joined by six or seven of us. But once we put this out there, I'm definitely hoping for more. I'm also going to invite some of the local financial media people tavern at the end of the world 6 30 tomorrow hope to see you there shoot me an email joe at stackingbenjamins.com if you can come if you're not sure you know what just come hope to see as many people there as possible hey this is john in seattle and when i'm not telling terrible dad jokes to anyone who will listen i'm stacking benjamins From Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and you don't need my crazy calendar to know that today is Leif Erickson Day, which is awesome because I brought out my old guitar and I got, I was made for dancing, just looping on repeat all day long. Oh, we are jamming. While I make music work at any cost, today's guest describes how American families are making college work. On today's show, Caitlin Zalou. Plus, in our headline segment, it turns out you can borrow money not from others, but from your very own 401k. What does that cost? We'll dive into that, throw a lifeline to one amazing caller, and also dazzle you with my outstanding trivia. And now, two guys who don't remember how amazing Leif Erickson was before his car accident, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-J-G. Hey, I think that was probably a boating accident, if it was anything. I'm not sure that he knows how awesome he was ever. That may not mean what you think it means. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Wednesday on the Stacky Benjamin Show. We are halfway through the week. 
We're ready to help you get through it. I am Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter and across the card table from me for a glorious hup for day. another mediocre day. <laughs> for another, eh. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Appearance. I was going to say we'll bring it, but we'll kind of show up. We'll, we'll attend it's, it's, with regrets. We're going to check the boxes <laughs> with regrets on our ours. Uh, we'll be there, but with regrets. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something on an RCP invitation? <laughs> like you've got the you've got the like blank are attending, you know, sends our regrets. Like I'm coming and I send my regrets. Right. This is going to be a crappy party, but I have to be there. <laughs> but my attendance, <laughs> gonna, my attendance is my mandatory. attendance is compulsory. <laughs> <laughs> I must be there due to family or or political reasons, <laughs> but I'm not going to like it. I'm just going to put that out there right now. Right now. <laughs> I've heard your open bar has bush light, so but I, I send my regrets. I will also be there, but I send my regrets. We we showed up for Christmas one year. My brother-in-law and I both like could pull into my parents' driveway. We're carrying we're carrying beer, both of us, into our house, and mom walks out and goes, "You know, your dad has beer." We're like, "Yep." It's exactly why we're bringing these. <laughs> That's usually what happens when, for our family stuff too. It's a uh, we do the trip up north to see the family. We pull in, I drop everybody off, and then my brother and I get back in the car and we go to the liquor store and go, "Okay, <laughs> hey, you were in there. What do we need? We need a whole bunch of stuff. We need a like lot, one of everything." Yes, we had to explain to my dad that Milwaukee's best was not uh, necessarily the Milwaukee's done better. Let's put it that way. Might be a little overpromised. Hey, thanks to HoneyBook for supporting Stacky Benjamins. If you run your own business, you're used to doing it all. But if you're struggling to get through that to-do list, man, I am right now. HoneyBook can help. Go to HoneyBook.com slash SB and you're going to get 50% off your first year. Thanks also to MetPro for supporting Stacky Benjamins. I am going down that journey, OG. I start my coaching this coming week. You're MetProing. Yes. For a complimentary metabolic profiling assessment and a 30-minute consultation with a MetPro expert, head to metpro.ca co slash sb that's metpro.co slash sb we got a great show we got caitlin zaloom caitlin is a uh, professor at nyu and a researcher who did some phenomenal research about the middle class og and how people are really struggling with college and about how if you're 50 like one of us here our experience with college and college right now not the same and she's got data and stories and and assorted ugliness to prove that in terms uh, of paying for it. In terms of paying for it, yes. In terms of the family hardship, getting people through school, uh, she's fascinating to talk to, and she's upstairs talking to mom. So before we get Caitlin down here, let's uh, get this party started with some headlines. Hello, darlings, and now it's time for your favorite part of the show: our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first headline comes to us from the Huffington Post. This is uh, by Casey Bond. Casey's uh, not Huffington. It's a different writer. <laughs> Does she have like staff? I'm, I'm, I'm unsure of like how big this thing is. Does Ariana have some yeah. staff? Yes. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> Come on. It's a softball, but I guess it was bad. It's, right, her, fine. it's her and Casey uh, writing. They, they sit across the desk from each other like I do. I'm sure they're in a basement in Manhattan. <laughs> like me and you. <laughs> Casey writes, you can borrow from your 401k with no penalty, but should you? We haven't talked about this in a while, so I thought this was a good reminder when Casey wrote it last week. Now that the Federal Reserve has cut interest rates again, she writes, things are looking up for prospective homeowners. Mortgage rates on their way back down, making now a prime time to become a homeowner. The only problem. Buy a new house. Oh, 
Yeah. You might not have the cash on hand for a down payment. Your own retirement savings could be the solution. A 401k loan allows you to borrow money to buy a house or for just about any other reason without going through a credit check or paying an early withdrawal penalty. But is borrowing against your 401k as smart as it seems? Yes. Oh. Well, Case, Casey writes, maybe not. I don't think we need Casey's help anymore, but Casey starts off with about how 401k loans work. And 401k loans, OG, I think aren't as pretty as a lot of people think that they are. I'd like to get the myth that you're borrowing your own money out of it. Because I think as soon as you recognize, and I don't know if she goes into this level of detail, but as soon as you recognize that it's really not your money that you're borrowing, if you just look at it from like a tactical standpoint, it automatically starts making sense that you're borrowing money from somebody else. So what happens from a behind the scenes standpoint is let's say your money's at Fidelity, you've got 100,000 in your 401k and you can borrow from your 401k up to 50,000 and that's how they write it. Borrow up to 50,000 from your 401k. Well, that's not really what happens. Fidelity lends you the money. They just take your 50,000 as collateral. So this is just like, I've got a paid for car I'm going to go to the bank and say, hey, uh, did you give me a loan on my Buick? They'll go, sure, of course we will. We'll take it as collateral. This is the same thing the 401k company does. But we don't say, hey, I'm borrowing from my Oldsmobile <laughs> you know, to, to, to like make ourselves feel better. The terms aren't bad, OG, as long as you stay employed. The problem no. is, is in today's working world, what do we, we, we just did a story recently, like the average uh, Gen Y person changes jobs is going to change jobs seven or nine times in their career. 19 million. Yep. Yeah. Right. 17.2% of the facts on the show are made up No, but I think the number was either yeah. the, the number was seven or nine. If you're changing jobs that often and it wasn't your idea and you have a 401k loan, bad things happen. You'll be required in most cases to turn around and pay the rest of that loan off within a predetermined amount of time. It might be 30 days or 60 days or something like that. And even in the odd chance that they allow you to keep making those payments during the term, it's not going to be as easy as it used to be. When you borrow money from your 401k, they just take it out of your paycheck. You're like, yeah, whatever. Take it out of my paycheck. I don't care. But now you have to remember to send the payment in. And I'm letting you know because I've told everybody we do every mistake in my household on a financial level so that you guys don't have to, usually twice, the first time because we didn't know, the second time to make sure it was as bad as I thought it was. And I'm letting you know that they don't do ACHs at these places. Like you can't set up an automatic payment. A friend of mine told me this. You can't set up an automatic payment to Fidelity to pay your 401k loan like you can your water bill. They they make you write checks and post them and mail them and you know, like every level of that is rife with opportunity to get screwed up. Well, and the whole loan balance is due. I mean, the whole balance. Well, yeah, I'm saying that if if they allow you to keep paying it. To keep still paying it. Yes. Easy. Yes, like correct. In, the, in a rare occasion, they'll say, yes. you know, as long as you make the continue to make the payments as described in the note, yes. you're still going to be fine. However, yeah, right. Casey puts it very bluntly, OG. She says, to start, if you lose your job, you're screwed. Oh, yeah, well. I, mean, I didn't just, know we could go with the succinct model today, but I'll, just, I'll, I'll take that. Just very blunt. A guy, uh, and we won't get into this too much, uh, Justin Pritchard, a certified financial planner in Montrose, Colorado, says that recent tax law changes have made it slightly easier to deal with an unpaid balance, but it doesn't change the fact that nearly always you have to come up with the entire unpaid portion of the loan by your tax filing deadline. 
uh, yeah, most so usually you have a much shorter time frame than that because they're going to report that as earned income. You know, as soon as that loan balance defaults, it's a really slippery thing. I'd stay away from it. Not to mention, by the way, I think the biggest issue out of all this is that most of the time you can't also contribute to your 401k while you have a loan. So some companies will restrict you from from making future contributions. So not only are you taking money out and putting it in, you know, I'll even give you the fact that it's gaining some interest. It's 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 I'm paying myself interest. Okay, sure, whatever. <laughs> but you're taking it out of the market. It is still more money coming out of your years. pocket. Yeah, and you're paying money back, right? Well, people argue with us about that. Well, it's not it's after tax. Okay. But you can't contribute during that period of time, most cases, you know, a lot of plans. So not only have you removed that portion of your portfolio from its opportunity to grow, but you've also restricted your ability to contribute for your retirement. So these are really bad places to take money from. Our second headline comes to us from Financial Planning. This was the big news last week, OG, and I thought we'd dive into this. Race to zero. You saw this Schwab, TD Ameritrade. And then late last week, E-Trade said, can't forget about us, dropping a bunch of commissions on client trades and also on trades for registered investment advisors on behalf of clients. A lot of people racing with Vanguard down to zero. This uh, piece written by Sean Aloka says, in the latest sign of the feverish race to win clients by offering products at the lowest possible cost, Charles Schwab first said it would cut commissions to zero on stock exchange-traded funds and options online trades, a move TD Ameritrade matched just hours later. Uh, The move, by the way, we found out, not according to this article, but another one was Charles Schwab had a new book coming out, and to kind of get a lot of press around both of them together. They did that. And of course, TD Ameritrade had to answer immediately because I don't think there's any bigger war than those two. Uh, they definitely compete against each other. Kind of like I, I would well, think. Fidelity. Well, yeah. I think Vanguard and Fidelity are more natural together because of the mutual fund aspects of it where, I mean, don't get me wrong, Schwab has funds, but I think a lot of people think more about trading platform with Schwab and with TD Ameritrade and E-Trade. I think it took two days for E-Trade to come to zero. What do you think about this? Is this a good thing? Because, or a- because E-Trade is still getting their news via telegraph. Right. Wait a second, Homer. <laughs> Wait, what does that say? Read that back to me. Stop. There is no fee. Stop. We must. Com- <laughs> no, there is no fur. That's an R. No, it's an E. You got to listen closer. No, you know what? It took him a day and a half for the AOL dial up to finish up. <laughs> You've got mail. Uh, what do you think Is about a this? Shot across the bow to E Trade. I don't know. I have a problem with E Trade. Do you? <laughs> why do we, we do that? I don't know. <laughs> just, just E Trade. If you want to sponsor the show, we were just such kidding. vitriol for no reason. We, we apologize in advance. Don't we, have. Don't sue us. We were totally kidding. E Trade. Let's dive into this though. What do you think? Do you think these uh, zero dollar trades? This a good thing. Well, now it's zero, so there's nowhere to go. Ta-da! <laughs> We're done. We don't have to talk about this ever again. Pretty soon, the, every uh, time you trade, they'll pay you. There is a mutual fund that does that. Brand new one, as a matter of fact, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, I think this really matters to shareholders of those companies more than it matters to investors using those companies' platforms. And uh, the thing that I got out of all of this, I mean, it was kind of a foregone conclusion eventually. You know, they had to reduce the costs. 
just because everybody else is going to do it. I mean, really, were, were people going poor on 495 trades? Yeah. Is that some sort of like egregious amount of money that, uh, you know, to pay? But Well, that's a good point. That shows you all the other ways these companies make money because, frankly, the trading fee and afterthought on the way they make money. Well, except for TD Ameritrade. That's the difference is that what I read said that Schwab has about 7% of their revenues from trading fees and they're still going to get, they're just going to route it differently. Remember we talked about this with, with Robinhood. It's free. We're not going to give you any good pricing and you're going to get some really crappy trade execution, but it's completely free. And so that's kind of what's going to happen. You know, there will still be a way to pay them to get priority routing, I'm sure. And companies will definitely pay it for that privilege. So they're not going to lose any money. But in Schwab's case, and I'm not remembering the number exactly, but I think it was 7% of the revenue came from trading fees, whereas TD Ameritrade, it was like 26% of the revenue came from trading fees. So... Hurts them uh, a lot more. Yeah, kind of a kind of a zing to TD right away. But but obviously, I think TD is going to be fine. Schwab's going to be fine. E-Trade's going to be fine. Here's I'll the bit... figure out ways to make money. Yeah. Sure. But here's the bigger question. They have scale. They have other models. They have other income streams coming in. If I'm sitting there, talk about the teletype coming across. If I'm sitting there at Robinhood last week as this nude's coming in, these people, these three companies all have far more tools than Robinhood has. They have lots of perceived advantages and, sure. and you know, uh, far, technology. far bigger platforms, all kinds right. of stuff. People at Robinhood must be going, oh, man. They are they are now going to start eating the lunch back that we thought we stole from. Did you from did them. you see the the comment from them? No, it was it was something along the lines of, "Well, we're glad we finally motivated the big guy to like you know stop screwing the little guy." It's like, and your company's going to get swallowed up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, that's exactly right. I mean, probably what will happen is that, but that's true for all those companies. Sure. You know, all those little acorns and, you know, whatever, all those. Well, and for a lot of them, you know, the fintech, that's a best case scenario, right? They get swallowed up and affect the bigger guy with their whatever advancements they bring to the table. So and instead here's your of, check for 200 million. Like, oh, bummer. Oh, <laughs> oh dang. I really wish I was running my company still not. I'm going to cry I, all the way to the bank. Yes. Yeah. With my check. How many zeros is that? Right. My check with two commas in it. And I'm done. Three commas. I mean, it's a good thing for consumers. I, I don't think that at the end of the day, it should be moving that big of a needle because you shouldn't be trading that much anyway. Well, that's my thing. I don't think it is great for consumers, OG, because I think that it encourages people to make bad moves. Like when there's a little skin in the game, just a little five bucks. Like I've had five bucks stand between me and a stupid trade before where I'm like, mm. oh, I'm going to have to pay 10 bucks round trip. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I think I'll just leave it there. Especially when you're trading three shares of your nickel stock. <laughs> right. You're like, well, let's see, it's a 15 cent purchase and it cost me $4.95. Maybe I'll hold off. This stock's got to go from a nickel to six bucks for me to break even. <laughs> All right, fine, but I can only buy 10 shares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it does encourage people to do the wrong thing. Well, we'll find out. We will. We are definitely going to find out because uh, these prices aren't going back up. They are. People don't do the right thing anyway, generally. You know, the general consumer. No. But if we can encourage people to do the wrong thing more often, OG, God bless them. Let's do it. Think about it. If you're the guy who runs Schwab, yeah. So you want volume. You want you want movement. You don't want people to buy six mutual funds and hold them for thirty two years. You want people, dollar cost average in every single month. Well, unless, unless it's unless it's your own, uh, unless it's your your cash fund. <laughs> 
which then, is then yeah, which is thirty percent of your robo advisor. Is it? It's not, not quite that much. No, no. So I think we got two lessons here: uh, borrowing from your four hundred one k. Worst case scenario, yes, but make sure it's the worst case scenario, not the number one place to go. Like I've heard on other podcasts, this is a miracle. You can borrow your own money. Yeah, maybe not. And then the second is uh, the race to zero. I think there's a lot more news to come here, OG. You know, before we say hello to uh, Caitlin Zaloom, I think there actually is a third takeaway here, which is this. These are great business moves by these companies. And imagine if you're in a spot where you have to move quickly, but you don't have the business systems to be able to do that. Like when you started your business, did you dream about taking care of all the admin tasks, drafting proposals, contracts, tracking down payments, and at the same time, trying to keep up with your competitors who are moving very, very fast? Well, if that wasn't part of your vision, you should have HoneyBook. HoneyBook's an online business management tool that organizes your client communications, bookings, contracts, and invoices all in one place, makes it simple to run your business better, professional templates, e-signatures, and built-in automation keep everything on track and makes you look good. They can even consolidate services you already use like QuickBooks, Google Suite, Excel, and MailChimp or Gmail. Uh, we use most of those. It's the number one choice for client business management for freelancers and business owners. Save time and do more of what you love with HoneyBooks. By the way, if you run on your own business, you're used to doing it all. But if you're struggling to get through your to-do list, HoneyBook can help. Check this out. Go to HoneyBook.com SB and you'll get 50% off your first year. That's HoneyBook.com SB for 50% off your first year. I got to say, OG, whenever I see a book that's from uh, Princeton Press, I think, oh, here we go. Another rocket driver. <laughs> that That's a story we might have to tell later. Yeah. Like where that's that. A, that's an oldie. Where that that's is an oldie. An oldie, but oldie a where that came from. Caitlin Zaloom. She has a book, which we're going to talk about today, that just came out called Indebted. Uh, she's an associate professor of social and cultural analysis at this little place called New York University, NYU. She's also a founding editor of Public Books and the author of Out of the Pits, Traders in Technology from Chicago to London. She is normally found in New York City, but guess what, OG? She's here with us today. And by the way, I can't believe I'm talking to her because her parents, I found out, are Wolverines. Well, that's kind of cool. I liked everything about her until we got to that. But we won't hold that against her. Caitlin Zaloom coming down to the basement. And coming down the stairs to the basement right now, it's our new friend, Caitlin Zaloom. Kate, how are you? I'm doing well, Joe. Thanks. Well, I absolutely devoured Indebted, I have to tell you. Obviously, huge, huge promise you very well know in this country, but why this book and you and right now? Those are all really big questions. I think that the reason that it was so important to me to write Indebted I thought we really needed a chance to look at just how profoundly college had become part of 
middle-class life, everyday middle-class life in this country, and to try to really take account of how that had changed some of our most intimate relationships, particularly the relationships between parents and kids as they're looking forward to college, you know, sometimes 18 years out. In your introduction, you talk about the different ways that a college education has looked over the years, about how it was different in the 50s as now. And I'm sure even, you know, your parents went to the University of Michigan. They met there. Even probably, Kate, between the time your parents met each other in college and you went to college, things changed. How has that change happened in the United States? I think that people don't even really fully believe that we used to have free and extremely low-cost college educations in this country. But uh, you mentioned my parents went to Michigan. I'm a graduate of the University of California, which for decades, all Californians could look to as a possibility in their lives. Of course, they weren't all going to be able to have the academic achievement to get there, but they knew that the financial burden was not going to be a problem for them because there was no financial burden. It wasn't until the 1980s when college costs started to rise and then rise you know, even more precipitously after 2000. It was really a fundamental right of citizenship for many people in this country for many decades. And now when I talk about indebted, there are always people who come to my talks who are in their 70s who say, this is crazy. This is not how I live. And even for me, and I'm in my 40s, college was already not that expensive compared to what it is today, although costs had risen by the time I was in school myself. So there's a real intergenerational shift that's going on here that we need to realize. You know, we've made choices that put the burden of college on the shoulders of families and young adults. This is, I mean, all I'm going to do here is ask you big impossible questions. So just be, just be aware because <laughs> these are such heady things, but I'm just thinking as you're talking, you know, you talk about college costs starting to go up in the 1980s. I am 51 years old. So I was in college in the late eighties and in the early nineties, paying my own way through school, taking just a couple classes at a time at the end. But I really feel like, and I don't know if this is, you know, my ageism because of my age that I feel like it came to a head at this point, or, or is this what happened? I really feel like toward the end of the late nineties, like mid to late nineties, I felt like there was this pressure and your politicians talking about how every kid needed and deserved to go to college. Is, was that kind of the head or are we still completely headed in the wrong direction? Well, one thing that's really happened which is a powerful message, both from politicians, but then also just from employers everywhere, is that people need a college degree in order to get a job that will give them a stable income that would allow people to, mm -hmm. to enter the middle class, which would then allow them to have things like stable marriages and even to live longer. We see lots of those kinds of effects around graduating from college. So it shouldn't be such a surprise that young adults and their parents see this as an incredibly important goal and one that will really allow the student to take their shot. You're saying it's almost like a, you know, to use college terminology, it's like a prerequisite, Kate. I mean, it's less optional than it used to be. 
it is less optional than, it's, than it used to be for sure, especially because if you don't have a college education, the bottom drops out really quickly. I mean, in terms of the kind of broader picture, if you don't have a college education, the jobs you can get are not well paid. They are more likely to be temporary. The job schedules are likely to be variable. It's not a pretty picture. And that isn't to say that college guarantees all of the good stuff that I just described. I mean, take, for instance, teachers who are occupy a really central place in the kind of middle-class imagination. Being a teacher isn't what it once was. Of course, the connection with students is still there. The mission-driven nature of being a teacher is still critical, but the conditions of being a teacher have eroded and eroded. And of course, teachers also need college educations. You base this book like a research study. I was fascinated about how you did that. Tell us how you broke down the research that you did. Yeah, I did the study as an anthropologist. That meant that I wanted to see the problem of the high cost of college from the perspective of the people who were living with it. That's basically all of us here in the United States. But I specifically wanted to see it from the viewpoint of the families that were trying to get their kids to and through college. So I'm not talking about the big numbers. I'm not running statistics. I am talking to families about what college means to them and what they do to get there. I did the study by locating families all over the country who would talk to me about their intimate finances, their debts, their incomes, what they hope all of this would achieve in terms of what their families were going to look like down the road, what their possibilities were. So it was actually really hard to find people who would open up that can of worms because, of course, it feels very personal and people feel very fragile around it. I can't imagine I mean, I'm just imagining you trying to even begin those conversations. We try to have them all the time here on the show, and they're very, very difficult. Yeah, you're you're really at the heart of it, too. I mean, you know, so it's one thing to talk about these issues in public. We talk about them in the big numbers. We talk about them kind of in these generic ways, but we really rarely take out our own books and kind of spread them out for people to see. In fact, being middle class means protecting that very information. It means being financially independent. And the idea that you take out your books and expose all that vulnerability is really uh, anathema. Yeah, I felt like it was a book of, I don't know if you've read those uh, Refinery29 pieces, you know, the journal pieces where people kind of expose like a week in their life and all the way they spent money. Like I really kind of felt like with college planning and college in general, you were getting there with these families. In fact, let's let's dive into one if you don't mind. The first family that you talk about in the book is Laura's family. Laura's from Detroit, so we have to talk about her because that's where we are. She's a nurse. She went to college and she starts off by saying, in retrospect, hers was easy because it seems to be wholly different, uh, Kate, for her family. That's right. When she was growing up on the Upper Peninsula in Michigan, she knew that she wanted to be a nurse. Her family were really directed toward helping other people. Her dad was a teacher. 
Her mom was a stay-at-home mother who was also very involved in the community. Uh, So it made sense that Laura wanted to be a nurse. And she had two really good options. She could stay and study at Northern Michigan University, or she could go to Oakland University outside of Detroit, which is also a Michigan public college. And she was able to do it without thinking about it too much. Her parents didn't have to face the same kind of pressure that she does with her two sons. What I recount in Indebted are all of the incredible ways she and her mother and father and her husband and the boys take account of basically every single penny every single opportunity they have to put money away, to think forward, just to get those young kids to school. Yeah. Just to dive into that for a second, if I remember correctly, she worked some extra shifts to put money away. Her husband worked extra. Her kids worked hard. The grandparents, to your point, decided to put money. I think you said that they owned like an A&W, but it had been closed down, but they still own the land. So when they sold the land, they took some of that money, which you would think would be a bunch of money, but puts that towards school. And it still, it still wasn't enough money to pay for all of the college. Yeah, that's right. And one of the things that is so critical about Laura's story, too, is just how lucky her family was to be in industries that were not related to the car industry in Michigan. Mm. Uh, you know, so they happened to be in education, they happened to be in healthcare, they avoided what was an unimaginable crash that happened to many families in Michigan in the 80s and 90s and to Laura's peers. So we think of financial planning as a thing that creates stability, that creates opportunity. But actually, it is stability that creates the ability to plan. Yeah, And that's what we see in Laura's story. Well, yeah. And I'm thinking about as we're recording this, hopefully it's over by the time this airs, Kate. But as you may know, uh, General Motors... Uh, workers are on strike. And you look at anybody tied to anything that's transit, you see so many more people working in the gig economy. How hard is it to plan when you're living in the gig economy? I mean, it's almost impossible because you don't know where your income is going to be coming from. You have no idea um, how long any stretch of prosperity might last. You're extremely vulnerable. And when you're vulnerable like that as a worker, trying to think forward and plan and save. I mean, you're just trying to satisfy your needs in the present. You're just trying to get by day to day. I want to ask about uh, college savings plans. You illustrate that nicely by looking at some other families. Let's talk about Patricia's family, Kate, if you don't mind, because she has two kids that are a lot different from each other. Can you explain their situation and how that kind of makes us look at at the way you save for college a little differently? Yeah. So Patricia was also a teacher, and she looked around when she was a young mother and saw the Florida prepaid tuition plan. And of course, this sounded great. She was a young professional. She was starting a family. She started to put money away in that prepaid tuition plan religiously for her two kids, Maya and Zachary. She started that when they were very, very young. 
far before she would know anything about how interested in school they would be, how they would do, you know, what skills or talents they had. And for Maya, it turned out great because Maya turned out to be an amazing achiever. For her son, there was a lot more trouble. It was nothing that she could have known, but he didn't do that well in high school. He had trouble holding down any kind of job that he had when he was younger. And then when he enrolled finally in community college, he wasn't really able to stick with his classes there either. So he's, you know, some degree short of his associates, but Patricia has all this money locked up in a prepaid tuition plan, which is not really going to give her any kind of return. And in fact, when she takes that money out, if she does, then she's going to pay a price to get access to it, as well as foregoing any kind of return that she might have gotten on a different investment as well. And it actually is kind of, I mean, when you sit back and think about it, the way that you write this, it makes me horrified because she's being penalized for the fact that she didn't know when Zachary was three years old, what he was going to do. That's right. And how would any of us know? I mean, my kids are 10 and 13, and they are growing and changing before my eyes all the time. I don't know where they're going to end up. And I think that that's fine. I, As a parent, what I want to do is to look at my kid in front of me and to say, what do you want to become? Where do you want to go? And to support that, not to try to force them into some mold that they don't necessarily fit and to commit myself to a financial path that may end up being unrealistic. You cover so many important areas and you look at lots of middle-class families, talk about why you focus on middle-class families versus poor families or wealthy families, which I think is important. Uh, Talk about model families. Race is a big issue and that's a very important chapter. Well, heck, they're all important, but that's a very important chapter. I need to cut to, though, some of the solutions and we obviously won't get to all those either. But you and I see politicians now, we see students rallying for politicians talking about the idea of free tuition, and you can see some upsides, some downsides. Do you think that's a real solution? I think that we just have to look back at our own history to find some solutions. Like I said before, I'm a graduate of the University of California, and the fact that that system was free or extremely low cost meant that young Californians could aspire to a college education. And the University of California has been a huge driver of mobility in this country, as have colleges and universities across the country that are public. We have to get back to the idea that college is essential for our society and for our democracy. In fact, it's more essential now than it ever has been before, because getting a college degree is what allows young adults to start a path to being middle class. It used to be that having a high school degree would allow that. That's no longer true. So we don't ask 
people to pay for fifth grade and we shouldn't ask people to pay for sophomore year. What about the arms race that it feels like is going on at colleges though, Kate? You look at the cost of college going up so quickly, which means college tuition going up quickly. It seems like colleges are very quick on the trigger to increase the cost of tuition. I mean, even if somebody else pays for it because somebody's paying for it no matter what, how do we keep that in check? On the public education side, what we've seen over decades is state legislatures hacking away at the budgets for public colleges and universities. And, you know, when it comes down to it, in order to offer an education to their students, colleges and universities have to get the money from somewhere. So they raise tuition. It's it's not that complicated. The math does not, you know, require like an advanced degree. So the solution is to fund colleges and universities. One objection that people raise to that is, you know, why should we be paying for people to get a degree that's going to raise their income? But I think that all of us benefit when there are teachers, when there are doctors, when there are skilled administrators. We have to think about this problem a little bit more broadly than just about the individual and their income. Yeah, it's interesting. We had that when I was in a small town in Texas, in Texarkana, Obviously, it was a very conservative town. And you saw people that wanted to defund the community college that was in our backyard. And I thought, we already have a big enough brain drain in this little town already. Like, why do we want to make it so that fewer people that want to get a higher education leave? I just, that part didn't make much sense to me. You talk about five different countries doing some things that we're not doing that well. And I want to focus on one that you talk about, which is Australia. And you really kind of shine a light on them. Tell me what Australia really is doing well when it comes to paying for higher education. Yeah. So one thing with Australia and why we might look to that country as a model is that first they have a lower cost of education in general. It isn't free, but it is much lower cost than what we have here. But the thing that really makes the difference is actually the way that they ask young adults to pay back the loans that the government gives them in order to pay for their educations. Because even if you have free tuition, you still need a functional loan system because we don't want students working all the time. We want them to be able to study. That's why they're in college. So it makes sense to have a loan system that will allow them to focus on what's going on in the class and, you know, how they're participating on campus outside of that. So what Australia does is it organizes the payments to go up and down as people's income goes up and down. So if you get a job that puts you over the threshold, you begin to pay. If you lose that job, you stop paying. It makes a lot of sense. And one thing that is really important about it is that it is predictable. When students go into their education, they know how they're going to pay going out. They're not thrust into this incredibly complicated, punishing loan servicing system that we have currently. Well, then this idea that we've talked about, to your point, this idea we talk about all the time on the show is when you get into an investment, you're looking at the ROI, right? The return on that investment. We can do that now for education then, Kate, because we know that if we take a job that pays X amount of money, I know that Y percentage of that is going to go to my education and I know it's not going to bankrupt me at the same time. 
That can be true, but there are a few issues with that. First, students are taking jobs when they graduate that don't necessarily fit their skills or their interests because that job will allow them to pay their debt. Okay. So the debt is really determining the course of of their career employment. Yeah. 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 The course of their career. So in order to have what we might think of as a rational labor market where people are developing their skills and bringing them out to employers, then we need to reorganize this debt system because what we have right now is really skewing that in very heavy ways. And another thing is that we know that when graduates take higher paying jobs that they don't necessarily want, but will allow them to pay their debt, they're also less happy. Yeah. I think what we're saying is on the same page that in the Australian system, what you're saying, there's less pressure to take that job. But I guess my point is, though, they can still calculate the return on their investment for college and they know that it's never going to be an overwhelming burden to them. It will do the intended effect, which is to get you further ahead. That's right. They can trust that their education will do what it promises, which is to help them cultivate their skills to decide how they want to participate in their communities and allow them to go forward from there without a sense that they are going to be punished by the very system that is supposed to be giving them freedom. The book is called Indebted, How Families Make College Work at Any Cost. It was a fascinating read and I I just devoured it. And, and Kate, I could talk to you for 16 hours about it. And obviously, even with 16 hours, we wouldn't get through all the issues that face us when it comes to this problem. Where do people get the book? Anywhere you get books, online, uh, at your local bookstore, at the library. That's so awesome. We'll have uh, links to some of those on our show notes page at stackybenjamins.com. Thanks for hanging out for a few minutes with us and talking about education and how we make it work. Thanks a lot. Hey there, my trivia peeps. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And, you know, for Leif Erickson Day, I went looking for some of his top songs. And would you believe they only keep talking about him being a, a Viking? Like, was that his band? Did I not realize the name of his band or something? I don't, Leif Erickson and the Vikings? That doesn't sound right. Wait, did he play football? Maybe? Well, since all I could find was this Viking reference, I thought, hey, you know what? Let's uh, let's run with it. Here's today's question. Uh, you know, uh, while the Stacking Benjamins might be the most playful money podcast, which Norse god was considered also playful, but often cunning and sometimes treacherous? Sounds like that describes OG, but we're going to have the real answer in just a couple minutes. Stick around. So I'm doing it, OG. I start this week, my Met Pro coach and I uh, getting together, and I'm taking the journey. You are going to love it. It's funny. I was talking- It's about time, too, by the way. I've been noticing a little- uh, Thanks, babe. Thickening in the jowls. Well, <laughs> winter is coming. <laughs> yeah, you can tell. Doesn't mean you have to have milkshakes every day for breakfast. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fake news. My, uh, when we were, when we were in the Canadian Rockies, uh, this, this one, we're on this, this little, uh, animal sightseeing tour 
it, and it was the whole thing was an animal sightseeing tour. By the and way, the animal was like, "Please get off of me, sir. Go to MetPro." Yes, but she was talking. She was talking about marmots and about how marmots marmots will feed up, and a lot of the marmots were gone. We saw we saw a lot, but apparently there's a lot, lot, lot more than we saw. She said because a lot of them were already starting to hibernate, and she said, "Yeah, it's really great. They eat all summer." And they get really fat and then they go to sleep and they sleep all winter and they wake up skinny. She's like, that is the perfect diet plan. <laughs> just, <laughs> just sleep it off and I'm skinny. I don't want to ruin it for you, but that is not what they're going to tell you on MetPro. Talking to Dennis at MetPro, he was talking about a lot of marathoners using the plan. And I really want to get back into uh, my marathon training. I'm pretty excited. I haven't done a marathon in a while and I want to start that, but I want to feel healthy first. So with MetPro, here's what happens. You are paired with a coach and that coach helps you start off with your diet and you walk through your diet and your diet is all based on what they call this metabolic profiling. Metabolic profiling means they tell you what to eat. They start off with everybody at the same place, but then depending on how your particular metabolism, not a one size fits all, like a lot of other quote diet plans, but how your body responds to that, that's where they make the tweaks, which is why, by the way, you'll see a lot of people who are top people in industry and top celebrities and also top athletes use MetPro because of the fact they don't have time to mess around with a one-size-fits-all solution. They have to get right to the root of the issue. And because I'm one of those people, OG, big, huge star. Industry insider just the top of the food chain yeah titan i think is probably titan the right word of podcast titan of podcasting i'm ready for met pro so i'll be sharing my journey but if you'd like to get your complimentary metabolic profiling assessment and a 30-minute consultation with a met pro expert head to metpro.co slash sb that's metpro.co slash sb and you can get that scheduled Welcome back, bros. So it turns out, <laughs> I mean, it's funny, actually, when you think about it. Uh, when, when I was playing my guitar earlier, I was thinking about a, another famous Leaf, disco star Leaf Garrett. Yeah, uh, he's different. That's a different guy. Uh, while I was wearing my shiny pants and wearing all my different hairs long as I can, uh, it turns out that Leaf Erickson was <laughs> he's just totally different different guy just totally different i have it on good word that just a year or two before joe and og founded a financial podcasting mr erickson was the first european to land in north uh, north america also while around here we never get much credit for being the first podcast to understand the importance of lowering fees by 0.02 percent or talking uh, about beer while you podcast about money this uh, Erickson guy apparently hogs all kinds of statue space in the USA with you know, stone erections sprouting up all over the years, uh, like in places like Boston and Milwaukee and Chicago, among others. Uh, while we all worship Joe's mom's cooking, this guy worshiped a pantheon of gods. And so today's trivia is about them. So let's jump back into today's trivia, which... Uh, was this, which Norse god considered uh, slightly more cunning and playful than I am was also considered to be treacherous at times. If you said Thor's stepbrother Loki, 
you've watched way too many Marvel movies. Loki wasn't originally from Asgard, but was taken by Odin and Freya and grew up alongside the hammer-wielding Thor. And much like Joe and OG get all the credit here, I'm sure Loki was just keeping everyone's egos in check. Luckily, I don't have to do that too much with these guys. But, you know, hey, <laughs> is that a hair out of place? Gotta run. Make up. Somebody, stand. Big thanks to Caitlin Zaloom. As you heard, OG, sitting over in the corner there, no easy solution to this, is there? Don't go to college. <laughs> and well, as Caitlin said, still not the answer. Not the answer. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have a solution for it either, but somebody needs to solve it pretty quick because I got a seventh grader. So, yeah, going to need uh, somebody to, to come up with something quick for me. I'm thinking about Ramit on Monday and how he, you know, developed systems to go after scholarships. It seems like that scholarship, I mean, she focused a lot on what needs to happen, you know, stuff that's out of our control, right? I mean, you can write your congressperson, you can talk to them about maybe a less egregious income-based repayment plan like she was talking about. If you think that free college is a way to go, you can talk to them about that. But those things are not things that you can control. You can maybe influence them a little, but let's be realistic, not a ton. Yeah. The stuff that's directly under your control, though, is going after scholarships and also to Mr. Dave Ramsey's credit, evaluating colleges that are close by versus ones that are far away, looking at the retail cost of college all in, including housing and food and things like that, doing, I think, a lot better job of strategizing earlier about college, which one are you going to go to, what's the price tag, and then also like Ramit did with those 60 scholarships that he won to go to Stanford, spending a lot more time chasing other people's money to get through school. Well, you can control that. You can control how much time you spend trying to get through scholarship applications. You can control what your grades are during high school, you know, because that will have an effect on it. But I think the other thing that we need to do maybe collectively is also recognize that there, we have to get rid of the stigma of like, oh, well, you just went to a community college for a couple of years, you know, or whatever. And it's kind of interesting because I talk to people a lot about school and college choices and things like that. And it's, and when the kids are like six, they say that, right? Like, well, you know, we'll have a real frank discussion with them about like what we can and can't afford. And, and uh, maybe two years of community college is a great idea. And then like at 17 and a half, it's like, but my baby girl wants to go to Harvard. It's like, yeah, but you don't have the money, <laughs> you know? So there's alternatives to the state university. There's alternatives to the other state university that's two states over. It's like, oh, well, I want to get away from the family. I want to get as far away as possible. I want to go to a different school. It's like, well, tough patooties. Like you could still be far. We won't call you. You can go to the school that's like three blocks away, stay on campus, save us $25,000 a year in out-of-state tuition, and we'll leave you alone if that's what you really want. A friend of Cheryl's was talking about that last week with her said, well, my daughter's not going to go to Michigan State because so many people at her high school go there and she just doesn't want to see all those people anymore. Like There's 52,000 people on campus at Michigan State and I don't know that I'm exaggerating much. No, right? I don't think you're exaggerating at all. There's yeah. a ton. Like I remember yeah. several people from my high school went to Michigan State when I was there. 
I would see like one person twice a week, maybe. Every so often. Right? Yes. I think when I went to Michigan State for a year, I think my freshman class had something like 22,000 kids in it or something. Yeah. I don't remember. I mean, it was just it was insane. Yeah. And maybe 40 are going from your, but not even that, from your high school. Maybe 25. Well, my high school had 70 people graduate from it. So, oh, maybe four. Right. Four. Yeah. <laughs> right. And and I never saw them. It was like, yeah. you know, I couldn't find them if I had to. But you're right. So, but that's a societal thing, you know, this type of stuff. Like, let's get more realistic. But there's a different societal thing, which is even as an employer, you know, looking at the name on that that sheet. And I get that, okay, maybe if a school's top 10 in an area, top 20 in an area, the person got a, a better education there. But if it says that I went to a top tier school for the last two years and went to community college for the first two, I still feel like there's some employers out there that still give it a little stink eye. Go, well, I, 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 I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. Thank God I haven't interviewed for a job in a really long time. But because we're making the big podcasting money, because, you know, I may have to in the near future. <laughs> so I'll let you know how that all turns out. Yeah. Uh, big thanks, though, to Caitlin for stopping by. Not not easy solutions, but it, just a fascinating read at how far we've come with the college problem in, frankly, a very short time. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline OG and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, you know what they do? They put what you value first, your loved ones and your time. And that's why they've made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. If you go to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now, a couple of things will happen. Number one, you'll tell them we sent you, which is always good because Haven Life likes knowing that we sent you and you'll get a free quote and you'll see how quick it is. The application super simple compared to those ones. If you've ever done one of these before, it's like 73 pages and a pint of blood, maybe not all at once versus just a few questions on Haven Life. Uh, their prices are affordable and policies issued by their parent company, Mass Mutual, who's more than 160 years old. Today, we're going to throw out the lifeline to Anonymous. Say hi, Anonymous. You've got mayo. Dude, a Seattle dog does not have mayo on it. It has cream cheese. Thanks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did you say it had mayonnaise on it? In fairness to me, I did say it had mayonnaise on it. But Anonymous, had you listened for maybe three minutes later, I'm like, you know what? That's not mayonnaise. It's cream cheese. So go back and listen to the audio tape and you will find that uh, if you run it in slow motion, I corrected myself. There's a correction. You don't mess with somebody's dog, man. You don't mess with somebody's dog, OG. Couldn't put cream cheese on a hot dog anyway. Or mayonnaise for that. It it, it was so flipping good. Cream Mm. cheese. On a hot dog. Fantastic. Dill pickle, pass. All you Chicago dog fans, I heard you loud and clear on social media, and you're all wrong. The Chicago dog, not great. I'll take the Seattle dog, though, with the cream cheese or mayo or whatever the hell it is. But I think Anonymous's point is correct. You don't mess with people's dog. I mean, I, I can't believe the conversations we've had about hot dogs. We can't get people to talk about 401k loans. <laughs> But then the hot dog controversy comes and everybody's got a got an opinion. opinion. Do we have a real question today or is that uh uh that's all that uh that's all that Doug gave that us. We, that's all we have time for. Right? Doug's like, we are exhausted. 
by it's that been one. a long week. Yes. Uh, we actually do have some real questions, but actually for today, unfortunately, you and I have uh, sadly some other stuff. And uh, and Caitlin's discussion, I think, was pretty uh, pretty heavy, OG. If there's extra time, I think you should go contemplate the cost of college. Doug's going to thank Caitlin and everybody else here in just a second. But two quick things before we say goodbye. Thanks to everybody who's come out to our events. If you're local in Detroit, thanks to everybody who's come out to our events. We had Chris Mamula come out to Green Path Financial. By the way, big thanks to Green Path Financial Wellness for partnering with us on these. They provided a ton of sandwiches and food and stuff. OG, it was it was really, really fun. And Chris Mamula was great. We also partnered with uh, Willa Williams and Wesley Eccles from uh, My Trinity Financial Coaching. They, by the way, are starting a podcast in January, so we'll have to have them on because they're a couple phenomenal women and great at what they do. I love the fact, don't get me wrong, I love living in Texarkana, but now that we're in a bigger town and we can bring some people to town, it is really fun being able to bring some of these great minds to Detroit. Uh, Thanks to everybody who's left us a review. As I mentioned on Monday, we went over a thousand reviews. We're at a thousand and one now. So uh, you could be review number a thousand and two if you want to tell people about the Stacking Benjamin Show. Thanks to everybody who's just, you know what, whether you review the show or not, thanks to everybody who's referred a friend who either needs to listen to this or just, you know, likes debating hot dogs. I think that's probably the big point. And last but not least, if you're looking for good financial help in your corner, OG and his team are taking clients. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG and uh, you'll get on their calendar and you'll see how they can make your financial life better in 20, well, but probably, you know, in 2020 and beyond at this point, right? All right, that's going to do it. Doug, you've got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Well, Joe, tell you what, first take some advice from Caitlin Zaloom's appearance. While we'll have to wait for lawmakers to work on better college options for now, you have to start early and don't get into college plans that lock you in. Second, borrowing from your 401k? Yeah. Shocking, not a great option. But the big lesson? Do not tell Joe's mom that you were mentioning Leaf Garrett on today's show. Now, there's a disco party going on with the Bridge Club upstairs you don't even want to know about. A quiet down up there we're trying to do a show all classy like oh hell if you can't beat them join them i'm out of here special thanks to caitlin zaloom for joining us you'll find her new book indebted wherever books are sold this show was created by joe salcihai produced by richie rutter reese and engineered by the amazing steve stewart online visit us on twitter at at S. Benjamin's cast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I just jumped the shark. SB Podcast may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Thanks to Joe's mom for including Sean Cassidy in the music mix today. Da-do-run-run-run, da-do-run-run. Run, run. <laughs> that guy, 
He's just got away with lyrics, doesn't he? He's just a musical genius. That's what I say. OG referenced rocket driver in your early days as a financial planner, you met some characters, some big time characters. And sadly, when you work with a big firm, it is a process of elimination. They bring in a lot of people in the door and see what sticks. And I don't, I, the financial industry, OG just has a heck of a time in the development area for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think it's because if you're really good at the job, the job is so fulfilling and so fun helping people reach their goals and watching them as they reach it and being a part of people's team that the people that are really good at it are not the people who train. And that's not to say that all trainers are bad. Some people are very gifted and that's their life mission is to train other people. But that said, there's also a bunch of people in training that you and I met who were just not that great at uh, at their job. And I think we're I think they went into training OG as a way to just kind of hang on. So you learn a lot of bad stuff. And they And you see one of everything. You totally do. As people coming in the door to work with you, you see one of everything. So I had yep. the guy who would wear, you know, back in the day, you were very um you were expected to dress, you know, in a suit and tie. There was a dude who had a ton of chest hair and didn't like wearing a t-shirt under his very thin shirt. And even after they told him you should probably wear a t-shirt, he still did not. So you, anybody who came in the door to meet with him, it was like, and now look at me, athletic shorts, stacking Benjamin's t-shirt and a hat on backwards. It's a, it's a whole different world. I saw that. There was a woman who would go out and drink vodka at lunch who sat across from me and would, would lie to people on the phone all the time Would just, what rate of return are you getting? Oh, you're getting 6%. Yeah, I get, be I guarantee seven. And I'm like, yeah, we don't do that. That's not what a financial planner does. She's like, well, I think it's, we'll find a way to seven. I'm like, but you can't say, I guarantee you seven. <laughs> like you, you can't. The guy that I worked with that used to do door to door insurance sales. Oh, great guy. He would eat his lunch and nap in his car because like, that's what he used to do. He did for 40 years. So he was very Just comfortable. He was very comfortable in his car. Like the whole setup of, you know? Yeah. But the, but the guy, tell, he would tell some really funny stories. Well, so the guy that OG mentioned earlier, though, I was walking down a hallway, I was walking down a hallway and I heard this guy, Frank, and Frank was, let's just say, not the smartest guy in the room. Wasn't the sharpest knife in the place where they keep the sharp knives. Wherever that might be. Yeah. 
not the sharpest knife in the tool shed. <laughs> not not to use a frank analogy, not the sharpest knife in the football stadium. He's talking to his clients, and it was always a little acrimonious with Frank. Frank didn't have a, like a warm, fuzzy touch, like you or me. Yes, exactly. He he really wasn't perfect like us, but 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 Frank would meet with his with his clients, and it was always fun to listen to because Frank would use the wildest analogies. And Frank, one day, I'm standing outside of this conference room where he's meeting with his client, you know, listening into a very private meeting about people's money. <laughs> I was wondering where you're going to go with this. <laughs> that part of this, that part of the story probably isn't good, but I didn't really care about the people's money. I cared about what Frank was saying. It was coming out of his mouth because it was always hilarious. And somebody said, the client said something about tax implications of something. And Frank says, well, it doesn't take a rocket driver to figure that out, Mr. So-and-so. And there's this pause and the client kind of laughs and Frank's like, what's so funny? He goes, well, I thought the rocket driver thing was funny. And Frank goes, no, it's not funny. It doesn't take a rocket driver to figure that out. And the client goes, I think it's rocket scientist. And Frank's like, no, it's rocket driver. Okay. Let's get back to business. (laughs) (laughs) What the hell would a scientist have to do with a rocket dummy? (laughs) I've seen rockets before. I'm like, Frank, that would be an astronaut, not a rocket driver. (laughs) They actually have an official name for that role. And it's not rocket driver. So that's why OG and I very naturally, probably the last, God, how long ago was that dude? Like 20 years ago, 15 years ago. It's been a long time. 20, yeah, at least. Yeah. So whenever OG and I are talking about something that's obvious, I think we both now just naturally go doesn't take a rocket driver to figure that out yeah it doesn't take a rocket driver well stackers the show might be over but the celebrations are just beginning because it is military appreciation month that i want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law eric who is such a giving person eric will do just anything for you and as a marine you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community gives to his family and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, There are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.